Hello, I'm Rachel Bannon from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. How common are oral cancers? Why is early detection important? And do GPs and dentists have enough awareness of these cancers? Joining me today to discuss these issues is surgeon David Wiesenfeld from Melbourne. And just a reminder that to access all of our free podcasts, including our ever-popular series on diagnostics called Beyond the Slide, healthcare professionals are invited to join the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au to find out more. This is Rachel Bevan, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hello, David. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast Experts on Point series. Thank you, Rachel. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and why you've come on the show today? Thank you very much, Rachel. My name is David Wiesenfeld. I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. I have in the past been the Director of Head and Neck Cancer at the Royal Melbourne. I've recently retired from that role and I'm now in charge of education and research in the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in the field of head and neck cancer. The main reason we're speaking this evening is that we're about to conduct a symposium at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in the diagnosis and management of head and neck cancer for the general practitioner. We want to try and improve the general practitioner, both medical and dental, ability to diagnose and partner us in the management of patients with head and neck cancer, particularly oral and oropharyngeal. Thank you. Now, before we get stuck into all those details, just for the broader audience, because our podcast and the Experts on Point series are in the public domain, I hope you don't mind briefly talking us through how prevalent these cancers are and where they typically appear in the body. In Australia, in the year 2022, there were 5,189 new head and neck cancers, the majority of which were oral or oropharyngeal. Tongue cancer is the most common in the head and neck, and there were 1,247 deaths in that year. They weren't patients who were diagnosed in that year, but they were cumulative deaths in that year. There's roughly a three-to-one male-to-female ratio. So certainly not insignificant numbers and certainly uh, warranting this uh, effort to try and raise more awareness. So what are the main risk factors for these cancers? Do genetics come into play often or are lifestyle factors more relevant? Historically, and I think still today, the main risk factor is smoking and alcohol drinking. I see. We do have in Australia a reduction in smoking, and I think this is going to be reflected in a reduction in smoking-related head and neck cancers in the future. We also have a particular group of females, women in their middle ages, who are now suffering with tongue cancer, and that is increasing a lot in Australia. It's increasing around the world as well. I'm not up to date with world figures. But in Australia, there is an exponential rise in tongue cancer in females. And we're seeing that in our hospitals that are where I work as well. We have studied this very issue and we are currently engaged in what's called an organoid program where we grow the cancers from patients and then we analyze the genomic basis and the mutations that are present 
in these cancers to try and improve our understanding of why they occur. So the challenge that one challenge we currently face is an increasing number of women that never smoked, never drank heavy amounts of alcohol who are coming down with tongue cancers and they can be difficult to cure. Oh, that's a very interesting insight. So I'm talking to you tonight about two anatomical subsites, oral cancer and oropharyngeal cancer. Oropharyngeal cancer historically has been in smokers, mainly men, but there has been a change since the early 1990s where a significant proportion of patients have their disease related to human papillomavirus, HPV, and HPV can be transmitted sexually through orogenital contact, and now that is an increasing group compared to the smokers. HPV is associated with approximately 60% of all oropharyngeal cancers. It's important to us in understanding and treating disease because the HPV-related cancers are more sensitive to treatment and the outcomes are better than in the smoking-related oropharyngeal cancers. There has been a significant change in HPV disease management in Australia, I think more so than in some other countries, wherein HPV vaccination is now available to young males as well as young females. We've seen a significant change in cervical cancer incidence in females. And because of the increased vaccination of males, it's expected that this disease will plummet in incidence by 2050. So you're anticipating that drop in numbers in the same way that regulation around smoking has created that drop. So we're moving in the right direction, but 2050 must feel quite far away sometimes. Yes, I think there will be a significant drop and it will probably be a more profound drop than what Mm. we see in smoking-related cancer because smoking prevalence is still very high. Yes. Interesting. Thank you. And what about culturally and linguistically diverse groups? Are they more at risk? I think the certain cultural groups are more at risk, particularly with regard to oral habits. So oral habits includes snuff, smokeless tobacco, betel nut chewing, pun, and that those habits are very common in the Pacific. They're very common in the Indian subcontinent. Mm. And we have a lot of immigration from both of those areas into Australia. And people do bring their habits and their cultural activities with them when they immigrate. So we're very concerned about an increase in the incidence, particularly of buccal cancer. Buccal is the inside of the cheeks, because if you are a pun user or smokeless tobacco user, that's where you place your snuff and you leave it in your cheek all day long. So why is early detection so important? My slogan is early detection saves lives, early diagnosis saves lives. And if you can diagnose a cancer when it's small, when it hasn't spread, when it hasn't gone into the lymph nodes in the neck, when it hasn't gone into the lungs, the chances that local treatment alone will cure it are very high. If patients come and the cancer's already spread into the neck nodes, or metastasized into the lungs, your chance of curing a patient are diminished dramatically. So early detection and prevention through avoiding risky habits, risk behavior, and regular surveillance with your 
general medical practitioner with your dentist is very important to achieve early diagnosis. We have had a few studies on this subject, and over a 20-year period, we've seen a dramatic improvement in the ability of general medical practitioners to diagnose oral cancers. So that's a positive, and we are working very hard to increase awareness amongst practitioners of these problems. Are there any kind of plans to reach out to the general population in terms of raising awareness? We do have, which we have had for many years and which I have strongly supported, the use of photos and advertising on tobacco products, cigarette packet labelling, which show cancers, and many of those images are of oral cancers, tongue cancers, gum cancers. So, yes, there is an education there about mm. prevention of oral cancer by smoking cessation. Yes, an interesting nuance. So what are the main treatment options for patients diagnosed with oral or oropharyngeal cancers? And have there been any breakthroughs lately that excited you perhaps? So there are different paradigms for treating oral and oropharyngeal. Patients with oral cancer are generally managed surgery first. And depending upon the surgical outcome and pathological staging, there may be an indication for radiation or there may be an indication for chemotherapy. There are very strict criteria for when do you use those adjuvant treatments. The criteria for chemotherapy is more strict than for radiation. Whereas oropharyngeal cancer is most often managed by radiation up front, sometimes combined radiation and chemotherapy with definite criteria for when, and to a much lesser extent, surgery up front, utilizing modern techniques such as transoral robotic surgery, but it's generally for small tumors. So again, we come back to early diagnosis helps. Small tumors, and in particular those that have not spread or metastasized to the neck, because the normal pathway for metastasis from both oral and oropharyngeal is into the lymph nodes throughout the neck. And have there been any changes? There are a lot of changes occurring. Firstly, there are changes and improvements in surgical technique, a better understanding of how much tissue you need to remove in order to achieve a clear margin. And I think we have been pioneers on that in Victoria in reporting our outcomes and improvements that can be achieved by taking a little more. There are changes and advances in radiation therapy that are constantly occurring. There's a lot of technological improvement in the machines that deliver radiation. And the availability of chemotherapy and different types of chemotherapy is constantly on the, on the move. Treatments that were given 10 or 15 or 30 years ago when I first started in practice are very different now than what they were then. And the newest treatment on the horizon, which is starting to show fruition and very positive results, is immunotherapy. Immunotherapy uh, is drug treatment that assists the patient's own body and the fighting cells, they're called the lymphocytes, to be active against the cancers and to destroy the cancers. So it stimulates the immune cells. Excellent. Thank you. It's a really nice summary. And what are the most common post-treatment complications that patients might experience? 
Well, the biggest challenge for us is trying to avoid mutilation with surgery. So whether you call mutilation of surgery, change of facial appearance, change mm-hmm. of muscle function, change of nerve function, I wouldn't necessarily call them complications because they're expected, mm-hmm. but trying to minimise them through improved surgical techniques is bearing fruit and showing improvements. Complications of radiation treatment can include tissue burning, can include damage to the viability of tissues, ulceration and pain. Radiation also tends to cause dryness of the mouth because it selectively affects the glands that make saliva. So after you've had irradiation to the salivary glands, they don't work very well. And a lot of patients report dry mouth, which makes it more difficult for them to chew, more difficult for them to eat, more difficult for them to swallow. Yes, which has a big impact on going on quality of life. Why is dental planning so important for patients with head and neck cancers? Dental planning is very important because patients need teeth to eat well. Patients need teeth to enable them to have a balanced diet with fibre, protein, carbohydrate and fats. If you haven't got teeth, it's much harder to chew. If you haven't got teeth, you swallow your foods whole and it's much more likely that you'll have digestive problems. So teeth are important for general health. Teeth are important for nutrition. And the trouble is when we operate on someone with a cancer of the gum, they lose teeth, they lose bone, and then we can reconstruct the bone, but we also need to focus on replacing the teeth. So Mm. the application of dental implants is very reasonable in this sort of situation. We do have certain patients who have the placement of a new bone from their leg into their jaw and dental implants put into the bone on the same day, but you've also got to take into account how their general health and general condition is the added time of operation by doing all this at the same time. And so there is obviously a need to continue this emphasis on dental care after treatment as well. Yes. The treatment has impacts on dental care because with the altered tissues in the mouth, it's harder to clean your teeth. Having radiation can affect the salivary glands, which I've already mentioned. And if the salivary glands are affected and the mouth is dry, it's much harder to clear plaque and debris away from the teeth. So the incidence of tooth decay rises dramatically after radiation, and you need to take steps to prevent that occurring. So we would encourage patients to have regular care with their dentist, to have topical fluoride treatments with their dentist, and if problems do arise, to try to conserve and save their teeth, because if the teeth become infected due to tooth decay, then that increases the risk of developing an unpleasant condition called radionecrosis. And radionecrosis is where jawbone can die or any bone can die, any tissue can die because the blood supply is affected and reduced after long-term radiation. And do you think, we touched on this before, but do you think the medical community have enough awareness about these kind of cancers? No, they don't. And one of my missions in my career has been to try and improve awareness. And we try to do that with medical students to teach them, bring medical students into our head and neck clinics to see patients. But it is just about a rare cancer. 
So rare cancer in Victoria is defined as less than 300 cases per year. Tongue cancer is about 340. Head and neck cancer in total in Victoria is about 700, not including skin cancers that spread into the head and neck. So we're just about on the rare cancer. And if you compare that with prostate, lung and breast cancer, it's an infinitesimal amount. And the emphasis of education has got to be on the common items. So those common cancers, students get a lot about those common cancers, but they don't learn a lot about the uncommon cancers. So that is a challenge. And increasing awareness amongst practitioners is also one of my missions through my role at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre as the lead in research and education for head and neck. And we are soon to conduct a full-day, all-day symposium on the diagnosis and management of head and neck cancer and how GPs, both medical and dental, can be involved in care planning and the provision of care because we need a partnership between the hospital practitioners and the primary care practitioners to look after the patients to the highest level. We have seen in some of our recent research about tongue cancer that there's a distinct disadvantage to patients who live more than 200 kilometres from the treating centre in that their recurrence rates were higher, their survival was worse, and I think that in part is because the patients are unable to continue returning to the primary treatment centre for surveillance and checking. Whereas if we can upskill the general practitioners, particularly those in rural and regional areas, to help us look after these patients, we may be able to improve their outcomes. So it's just the same as people that live in the city. Yes, there's always this enduring disparity between the metropolitan and the regional and rural areas. So it's a very important point to highlight. So beyond the symposium, are there other things that you're doing to help raise awareness? We're supportive of a group called HANCA, Head and Neck Cancer Australia. And HANCA is about trying to support and provide information to the community and to patients. So those resources are all available. If you look up HANCA on the web, it'll give you resources about all sorts of head and neck cancers, how to diagnose them, how to manage them, what problems to think about, how to avoid complications. So it's a very good resource and it's an excellent organisation. Oh, that's very useful. Were there any other resources or papers perhaps that listeners who would like to learn more about could be referred to? Resources for the lay community, I would focus on Hanker because that's their job is to provide those types of resources for the community. And as far as the professional community is concerned, we do have programs and articles available. There's a general practice symposia through the Royal Australasian College of General Practitioners, which is ongoing. I've contributed to it once. There are further sessions planned for the coming year through the college. Within the dental fraternity and dental profession, there are regular professional development courses on oral cancer management and the role of the general practitioner in supporting these patients. I would like to stress that our forthcoming symposium, which is on the 7th of July this year, which is an all-day symposium for general practitioners, primary practitioners, medical and dental, 
is still open for registration. We also have online resources within the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre of previous courses that we've run, including a seven-part symposium on tongue cancer and including an oral and oropharyngeal symposium that we conducted in 2019. So fantastic, David. Thank you. We'll make sure we include the links to all of those resources in the show notes. And it's nice to have a mix of resources for a professional community as well as consumers. So that's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for your time. It's been fascinating chatting with you about this today. My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series, brought to you by the Oncology Network. To hear more podcast episodes, head over to our Oncology portal at www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and will give you access to exclusive content, such as our fantastic diagnostic series, Beyond the Slide. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your colleagues. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast.